you know, vitamin D is very good for you and it's good for your bones. So let's everybody have vitamin D and let's have 2000 units, even though I'm a 19 year old teenage boy, right? It does not make sense. The Americans through their homes can write off and deduct off their income the interest paid on their primary residence. In Canada, we cannot do that. Because a lot of the things that the financial gurus are talking about actually do not apply to you personally. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Hello, and welcome back to the show, How's My Financial Health Doc Podcast where we talk about everything that relates to finance for healthcare professionals. The topic for today is actually why you should not listen to people who talk on podcasts. And that may include me as well. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about all these podcasts that are done for financial topics. And a lot of them um, give their opinion. Obviously, it is their opinion. And unfortunately, people who listen to podcasts take those opinion as fact, as gospel. Podcast today is really to let people know, yes, take the information, analyze the information, digest the information, but do not regurgitate it as though it was the only truth on earth. Because a lot of the things that the financial gurus are talking about actually do not apply to you personally. You have to realize that a lot of these gurus are talking to the mass audience. In my case, I'm probably talking to myself because nobody is listening to my podcast anyways. But a lot of these gurus have millions of listeners. And when they're talking to millions of listeners, they are not talking to you. And so take whatever they say and analyze it. And some of them take it with a grain of salt. So let's begin and look at different things that people have been saying. And if it really does make sense to you. And when I'm saying you, I mean you personally, and I don't know who you are. You may be a physician, you may be a nurse, you may be a dentist, you may be a lawyer, you may be a, a nurse practitioner. And so this podcast is really focused towards healthcare professionals. And so we're not talking about the regular and Mrs. Joe here. We're talking about healthcare professionals. So we're talking to people who have a good, stable income. And so what does it mean for you when these gurus are saying what they are saying. So first off, let's start by listing who these gurus are. You have obviously heard of these gurus on American podcasts when they are talking to the American population. And there are these Canadian podcasts who are also talking to the Canadian population. And so first we need to realize which podcast am I listening to and who are these people talking to? Are they talking to the Americans or are they talking to Canadians? And since this is a Canadian podcast and I'm Canadian and I hopefully most of the listeners are Canadian, you want to listen to Canadian content when it comes to very specific tax um, treatment and tax efficiency. 
when it comes to the regular you know basic financial knowledge i think a lot of the principles apply to everyone but when it comes to the specifics of income taxes estate planning retirement planning we have to be really careful that we are listening to canadian content if we are listening to an american content and we are trying to apply the very specific tax income or regulations to our canadian environment first of all you are applying those learnings to the wrong environment it's like me saying you know vitamin d is very good for you and it's good for your bones so let's everybody have vitamin d and let's have 2000 units even though i'm a 19 year old teenage boy right it does not make sense so first of all make sure that you are applying the right knowledge to the right environment and to the right context but more importantly to your specific situation okay so now that we've got that out of the way let's try to look at the different things that these gurus are saying you need to realize that first of all is that learning applicable to you if the guru is saying certain things that is mostly applying to the masses mr and mrs joe everybody or people who are in the low to middle income does it really apply to you if you are in the middle to high income and so whatever they're saying does not apply to you and in fact it's detrimental to you if you implement it word for word and unfortunately a lot of people in our community you know like i said earlier we don't have very much financial literacy training and so where do we get our information we get it on the web we get it on tv shows we get it on mr finance google or we get it on podcasts like these and so they take those learning and they implement it word by word without really thinking about whether this actually applies to them or not it is the equivalent of me saying that metformin is a first line treatment for type 2 diabetic and therefore i should give metformin to everybody because when i'm talking about type 2 diabetes i know that the canadian guidelines say metformin is a first line but hold on what if i'm i i have renal failure and my creatinine clearance is less than 35 or what if i have you know cardiovascular disease is metformin still applicable to me probably not but is metformin a good general first line therapy absolutely but then again does it apply to me and so please don't take whatever the gurus are saying that they are talking to the masses millions of people and take that as 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 fact as truth and the only truth and say i have to follow that now another thing that we need to remember is that again they are talking to the masses they're talking to millions of people they're not talking to healthcare professionals whether we are referring to the canadian gurus or the american gurus keep in mind that this podcast that i'm doing is for healthcare professionals when they're doing their podcast they're not aiming at you this is you're not the target audience their target audience is mr and mrs every canadian out there and so do what they say apply to you as a nurse as a nurse practitioner as a physician the answer is most likely not and the simple reason is because 
as most healthcare professionals, we have a very good, decent income. We are in the middle to high income earners. And so our tax burden, our, or our retirement planning is very different. One simple differentiator. As physicians, we're all self-employed. Most of us are self-employed. We do not get a pension. But if we incorporate, we can set up a pension. And so if I can set up a pension, does RRSP make sense to me? Probably not. But does RRSP make sense to the average Canadian? Absolutely. And so therefore, we need to make that distinction. The Americans have a very different tax system than the Canadians. So that in itself is a great differentiator. And because tax is treated differently in Canada, the tax burden for Canadians is so different than the Americans. And so can we use the American way of doing things? I would argue that we shouldn't, because if we do that, we forego a lot of opportunity. An opportunity of what you say? Well, it's opportunity to actually properly plan a strategy that is tax efficient. As an example, the Americans have a much lower tax schedule than the Canadians. Another example is that the Americans, through their homes, can write off and deduct off their income the interest paid on their primary residence. In Canada, we cannot do that. When I'm holding on to a mortgage and I have to pay that interest on that mortgage, that monthly interest cannot be deducted off my income. And so therefore, if I can't do that in Canada, whatever the Americans say about real estate, I have to think twice and three times before I can actually implement exactly the way they do it. And in fact, I probably should not implement exactly the way they do it. That also brings up the point that because they treat real estate very differently, it makes absolute sense for the Americans to invest in real estate. Now, 2008 with the subprime lending fiasco, you may say, well, probably the Americans shouldn't invest in real estate. But if that didn't happen, investment in real estate is a very, very good investment. In Canada, is it a good investment? Sure, it can be but it has to be set up appropriately. And is Canada in, and in Canada, is investment in real estate as good as it is in the US? I don't know. It really depends on where you are. So if I were to invest in the greater Toronto area versus I'm gonna invest in a small town in Ontario or a small town in Quebec or in Alberta, is it the same? Do I get the same return? And is it worth all the trouble and worth all the expense? So all that needs to be taken into consideration. Just because an American guru says it's great to invest in real estate because you have all these tax benefits, it does not necessarily apply to Canadians. I'm not sure if the audience knows this, but in the US, they have a rule whereby if you sell a home and within the next 12 months, you buy a bigger home worth more, the sale of your smaller home, that capital gain is not taxable. 
And so you can keep buying homes after homes after homes as long as you go bigger and more. And the sale of the smaller home is now tax-free. There's no tax on the capital gains. And that's how real estate empires are built in the U.S. because they take advantage of that law. Now, I've checked with many accountants. I've checked with real estate agents. And that such law does not exist in Canada. And so can we build a real estate empire as easily as we would in the U.S.? Again, probably not using that type of strategy. Other strategies need to be uh, looked at. And so it's a question of knowing what they are saying and how does that apply to my Canadian environment. Now, I have also listened and been following different American podcasts done by American doctors. I have absolutely no issues with what they're saying when it comes to basic financial knowledge and literacy. But when it comes to different opinions on life insurance, taxes, paying down debt, I also have to be careful in what they are saying. As an example, almost 99% of American doctors are employees of what we call ACOs, Accountable Care Organization, which is a new term for HMOs. So physicians, by and large, in the U.S. has become employees of the institution. Whereas over 95% of physicians in Canada are still self-employed. And so just in that perspective alone, the treatment of taxation on income already starts to separate. In Canada, unlike the U.S., physicians in most provinces can incorporate. In the U.S., physicians are, are employees of the hospital. And so there is no opportunity to incorporate. That is a huge difference. Because in Canada, professional corporations are treated as small businesses. And small businesses have different tax rules than the employee. And so based on that alone, the tax implication is significantly different. And so whatever the American physicians are saying on their podcast, first of all, based on that difference alone, doesn't even apply to us. And so when I listen to them, I listen to them with a lot of, uh, what I say, healthy skepticism. The differences in tax implications due to incorporation alone, we are no longer comparing apples to apples. We're not even in the realm of comparing apples to oranges. We are now in the realm of comparing apples to a pumpkin. Right. First, it's a different size, a small apple versus a huge pumpkin. But two, we're comparing a fruit to a vegetable. That's how different it is based on the simple fact that Canadian physicians can incorporate into a professional corporation. And there's a reason I bring that up, because the comparison is no longer even valid. A lot of these shows are saying, you know, as a physician, when it, especially when it comes to life insurance, you know, you could self-insure by the age of 50, 60. Therefore, you should only buy term and invest the rest and, and forget about whole life. While I agree with term insurance and, it, and all of its 
attributes and advantages. I disagree with the condemnation and the bashing of whole life insurance in general. Of course, these physicians in the U.S. are speaking about their context. They're speaking about their environment and how their taxes are treated and the different tax benefits that they have. And so while it makes sense for them to use term insurance as a temporary insurance and uh, plan for estate and retirement uh, using different other strategies, while it makes sense for them, that strategy does not necessarily make sense for us in our environment, given our tax uh, burden and our tax brackets. And because we now can incorporate, there are different strategies that makes it that makes whole life much more tax efficient and makes sense in the long run. And so if we're going to use that mindset that we can only use term because term is cheap and term is great and whole life is bad, well, we are only seeing it from the Americans' perspective. And we're only seeing it from their tax treatment perspective. I do want people to walk away and say there are benefits to term and there are benefits to whole life. So let's not only compare to the U.S. because I think that's very narrow-minded. Let's compare to our fellow Canadians. A lot of Canadian gurus will also say, you know what, low fees is the way to go. While I absolutely agree with that, low fees is not the only way to go. It is a great way to go, but definitely not the only way to go. Does it make sense in your entire strategy? Does it make sense in one part of your financial strategy? Does it make sense in insurance? Does it make sense in investment? Does it make sense in estate planning? Does it make sense in your retirement planning? And so I think it's a little bit narrow-minded to say, let's do low fees across the board, where if we did that, we actually miss opportunity because there are certain things that are valuable, that are tax-efficient, but not low-cost. And so if we only take that approach, we are missing out on all the things that are possible out there that at the end of the day have a role in increasing our overall net worth. And so if I use a low cost strategy and I can only increase my net worth by 1 million, for example, but I can use a higher cost strategy to increase my net worth by 3 million, you can see that even though I'm now incurring a little bit more cost, I am significantly increasing my net worth. So does it mean that just because it's a higher cost that there is no value in it, right? So I think we need to assess and analyze each strategy, each approach, tactic, each asset with its own lens and not do a blanket cover to say, let's just all do low fees. Like if we were to do that, then you know what? All my furniture at home would be Ikea furniture. I wouldn't have anything other than Ikea or I wouldn't have anything other than furniture from thrifty store, wouldn't it? Obviously, I don't have that. 
I have some furniture that are non from thrifty and non from Ikea. And I have other furnitures that are from Ikea because I need it for a certain reason. It meets a certain goal and objective. And again, we have to look at our own personal finances the exact same way. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense, right? The analogy for that is for me saying, wow, let's ditch Warfarin, right? River Roxaban and all these DOACs are so great, right? No need to monitor the INR, uh, lower mortality rate. It is so good and so great. Let's put everybody on a DOAC, right? And just by hearing that, you say, oh, Vu, you're crazy, right? I can't use a DOAC on a mechanical valve, or I can't use a DOAC uh, for certain cancers who have PE, right? You quickly realize that as great as DOACs are, I can't use DOAC everywhere. So if you understand that analogy, you should understand the analogy of low cost. It's great, it's beautiful, but it cannot be applied everywhere. So now that we understand a lot of these principles are great, are fabulous, we need to know about them, we still need to make sure that we're implementing it in the right way that is right for us. And so when the gurus are talking about these, are they talking about you? Should you listen to them for this specific aspect of that conversation? Now, you hear me talk about these gurus and why we need to be careful with them. The same thing applies to what I'm saying. So if what I'm saying is a general principle, but does not apply to your circumstance and your scenario, just know that I've said it, just know that it's my opinion. But then at the end of the day, does it apply to you? And if it doesn't apply to you, leave it. Just know that it's out there and you've learned about it. So having skepticism to what I'm saying is also very healthy. So now that we've talked about why you shouldn't listen to gurus and the different reasons for it, I want to address some of the dogma. I want to address some of the dogmas that been propagated through the airwaves in podcasts. Dogma number one, and you hear this all the time from every single guru you meet, whether they're Canadian, whether they're American, whether they're Australian, whether they're European, it doesn't matter. All these gurus are saying this one thing, which is a basic principle in finance, I believe, at least in personal finance and management of money. And so keep in mind that all these gurus are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Everybody over the airwaves. They are not talking to you. So who consists of the mass population? Low income to medium income audience. They're not talking to high income audience. If you feel that you are part of the high income audience, and I know everybody out there is shaking their head and saying, I'm not a high income audience. Well, if you look at the Canadian data, what is defined as a high income? You would be very surprised where you would fit. And so if you are a high income earner, whatever these gurus are saying may not even be applicable to you. But if you follow them to the T, you will get hurt really, really bad. 
Okay, so let's get to it. What is the first dogma? The first dogma is pay down debt. Have no debt. Pay down debt as fast as possible. By the time you retire, you should have no debt. That is the common teaching out there. Now, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree that with that at all. However, does it make sense for everyone? It obviously makes sense for those who are struggling. It obviously makes sense for those who have low income. Does it make sense for people who are median income? And does it make sense for people who are of high income? And does it make sense to medical students and residents who come out and start their first day of practice with a minus $300,000 in debt? Does it make sense for them? If we were to take this advice and apply it to the T, then I can't buy a house until I've paid off that debt. I can't have a certain lifestyle before I pay off that debt. And paying down debt of two hundred dollars to $300,000 may take me 5 to 10 years, depending on what specialty I'm in. And what if I'm only in family practice and I make a good amount of money, but not the ones that the specialists are making? It may take me up to 7 to 10 years before I pay down that debt. And so what does it mean in our current low interest rate? So my student loan is accumulating interest, but it's a low interest. The market is booming, and I can invest and make a higher interest. So mathematically speaking, if I invested now, there's enough interest to even cover that student loan. And also, if I don't start investing and saving now, and I only pay down debt for seven years, then I've lost seven years of compounding opportunity. How does that look at the end of my practice when I'm retiring? What does it mean for my net worth? Does it still make sense to pay off my debt totally before I start investing? I will tell you without doing the math that the answer is no, it does not. Because the years of compounding, once it's lost, it's lost. I cannot recuperate that 7 to 10 years. So does it make sense for a medical student who's you know, minus $300,000 in debt with an interest rate that is low to not invest and save until they've paid off the entire debt, which may take 7 to 10 years from now. And that would mean that they would lose 7 to 10 years of compounding power. As you can see, what needs to be done is put pen to paper and calculate to see whether that makes sense mathematically. Following the dogma of first paying debt first may not necessarily be applicable to everybody. Secondly, what people say is don't have debt. Well, yes, I agree with that. Don't have debt. But I think most people don't understand that you can use debt. And so while I like not having debt, I do like to use debt. And so a lot of the times we confound each other. And there's also such a thing as good debt and bad debt. So if you have debt, then it's a bad debt. But if you use debt, it's actually a good debt. So unless you understand that concept, you're going to fall into the trap and thinking that all debt is bad, therefore I have to pay it down. And so understand what debt are you talking about. A lot of people ask this question, should I pay down my mortgage as fast as possible or should I invest? 
Well, it's a dichotomous question, isn't it? But the the real question is, it doesn't have to be. It's not one or the other. Why can't you do both? Why can't you pay down your mortgage and also invest? I think we make a lot of these false assumptions and false questions because we want to dichotomize everything. But reality is, in life, there are many options. Similar to our discussion about paying down debt or invest or save, the same thing applies to mortgages. Given how low mortgage rates are right now, they're less than 2%. But if you put your money into savings or into investment for long term, you're probably getting somewhere between 6 to 10%. And so if you're getting 6 to 10% and you're only paying 1.9%, wouldn't it make sense mathematically to invest as well? Because over the long run, you would increase your net worth. And so having to make those decisions is really looking at what does it mean for my net worth at the end of the day? And so paying down debt or paying down mortgage as fast as possible may not be the most intelligent thing to do. Okay, we now go to dogma number two. So people always say, don't use credit cards. You should not use credit. Always pay cash. And so what this dogma says to you is, I don't understand that everything that we buy in life, we finance. So whether we pay in cash, we still have to finance it. Whether I pay it in credit card, I still have to finance it. And so people who say never use credit card is because they don't understand this concept, the fact that we finance everything. We either pay it upfront with cash or we pay it after with credit card. But don't be mistaken, we pay everything by financing it. And so whether you pay upfront or you pay at the end does not matter. What matters is, are you living within your means? If you're spending more cash than you make, you're still going to end up in the same trouble as if you didn't pay your credit card monthly and leave an outstanding balance. The issue is not the credit card. The issue is you're spending more than you make. So understand that the problem is your own behavior. It has nothing to do with the credit card. Yes, I get it. Some people will say, well, credit card makes it so easy to spend. Absolutely they do because it's convenient. But again, if you're disciplined about it or you put a limit on your credit card or certain things you pay by credit card other things you pay by cash and you have a consistent way of monitoring the outflow and the inflow you will not run into trouble and there are many apps out there that allows you and keeps you in control that allows you to you know calculate how much you are spending day after day for a month so you can do your monthly budget using this app, which, is, which are very convenient as well. And so the issue is not cash versus credit. The issue is, am I spending more than what I'm making? If I'm using a credit card and I pay it off every month and I do not leave an outstanding balance, there are no issues with that. And in fact, there are advantages because many of these credit cards want your business. They offer you points. They offer you cash back. They offer you different things. And if you can take advantage of that, why would you not? It's free points, free money for using the exact same amount of money that you would use in cash. And so just to say blanket statement, don't use credit card is kind of stupid. 
Dogma number three. And here we go. I'm going to rant a little bit. It's the whole idea of buy term insurance and invest the rest. So if you've heard me speak throughout all these podcasts, you know that I like term insurance. You know that I also like whole life insurance. You know that there are good features of term insurance, but there are also good features of whole life insurance. There are bad features of term insurance, and there are equally bad features for whole life insurance. The issue is not a blanket statement that term is good or whole life is good or term is bad or whole life is bad. The issue is much more nuanced. The issue is that do you have a strategy? Are you on a accumulation strategy or are you on a distribution strategy? What does your tax burden look like? What does your final tax bill, which is the tax bill at time of death or maybe one minute before death? What does that look like? And so you need to implement a strategy that fits those needs. And so a blanket statement to say, you know, only do term and invest the rest because mathematically it's the only thing to do and it's the right thing to do because it's low cost. Again, does not take into consideration proper strategic planning. Well, this is where our American colleagues are right given their tax context. But it does not make sense for us necessarily in our tax context. We have a totally different tax system. We can incorporate in Canada, whereas they cannot in the U.S. We have very different retirement vehicles, and we have very different estate laws. And so following the gurus and say, buy term and invest the rest because it makes sense for them. It makes sense for the American context. It makes sense for their mass population does not make necessarily sense for you. And if I hear that our Canadian gurus say the exact same thing, well, it may make sense for people who cannot incorporate. It may make sense for people who are of low to middle income. Does it make sense for some of you who are high income? That is the question. Finally, dogma number four. And this dogma number four is one that I hear all the time. It is in the newspaper. It actually happens now, between now and end of February. And it is the idea to maximize your RRSP. Now, don't get me wrong. RRSP is a great vehicle. But it is not a great vehicle if you are a high-income earner. It is also not an ideal vehicle if you are incorporated. So if you've heard my episode on RIF, R-R-I-F, and you heard my episodes on individual pension plan. And if you haven't, please go and listen to those right now. Stop this podcast, go listen to that and come back. But if you understand those principles of why you should not maximize your RSPs for high income earners and why you should use an IPP, individual pension plan, or a PPP inside a corporation and how is more advantageous to a RRSP, you now quickly realize that while RSP is a great vehicle, it's a great product, it is not for everyone. 
And so the dogma that you hear in on TV and commercials, go and buy your RSPs and maximize your RSPs, while it is a great marketing tool for us to go and spend our money at the banks, it is not a good plan for everybody. And the reason why all these commercials are out there is because they want you to walk into the bank. They want you to walk in there and give your money to that advisor so that you can buy those high-fee mutual funds. And so this is the Kool-Aid that we've been drinking for the last 40 years. But is that Kool-Aid good for you? Or do you want a vodka? Or do you want a Coke? Or do you want an orange juice? Drinking Kool-Aid may not necessarily be right for you. I will give you a last medical example. For those of you who practice cardiology and emergency medicine, you'll know what I'm talking about. Amiodarone is on every ACLS algorithm. It's so great and so wonderful that it has appeared on every single algorithm in the ACLS. But would you give amiodarone to a stable VTAC if it's due to hyperkalemia or if it's due to acidosis or if it's due to a TCA overdose? So if you're a cardiologist and you're an eMERGE doc, you probably cringe at what I just said. If you give amio to those people, you would kill them on the spot. But amio is in every single ACLS algorithm because it's a good drug for VTAC, but not good for a rhythm that might look like a VTAC. So why should we not listen to the gurus? You have it. You've heard it all. You've heard all the reasons why you should not listen to the gurus. Am I a guru? No. Do I know everything about finance? No. Does everything I say apply to you? No. So please also have a healthy skepticism to what I say. If you want to reach out to me, you can go on to my new website, financialhealthdoc.com. Again, it is financialhealthdoc.com. Dot com or email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. One more time, it is hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.